Hey everybody, this is a long one, so I want to make sure the intro is real quick. Just like the last time in mid-May, Rob Morris of the More Freedom Foundation and I sat down to talk about a week and a half ago. Rob's YouTube channel, which with everything else you'll find linked on the show page, is covering the Middle East pretty intensely right now as part of a series called Everybody's Lying About Islam. And as you guys know, SFD's in the middle of an ongoing exploration of mid-century Iran. As we chatted about the current crisis in Qatar, the way that the United States has picked Saudi Arabia as its horse in the region, and why we both should and probably will not reconcile and reach a detente with Tehran. Both Rob and I could use your help to keep our operations afloat, since he's staring down the barrel of a self-imposed deadline, and I very shortly got to make some serious decisions about law school and shelving SFD for three years. So if you enjoy these shows, the shorts, the talks, and the long historical episodes, please, please share them on Facebook. Please come talk to us at the SFD website, and please, if you're really inclined, head to patreon.com slash democracy and consider supporting what we're doing. One other little housekeeping thing is that when you do a live chat, especially during a week when you've been traveling and now you're visiting with relatives, you can lose the thread of what exactly you're saying and leave arguments truncated and half-baked. That's part of this format, and that's fair, but there's one thing that I wanted to clarify here right at the beginning. Around the 45-minute mark of this show, I'll start what sounds more or less like a defense of Hezbollah, or an attempt to whitewash that outfit, which was not exactly what I was going for. Me and Rob will be talking about whether or not it's a quote-unquote terrorist organization in the context of Iran being labeled a state sponsor of terrorism for funding them, specifically during the Lebanese Civil War. I was pushing back against that idea not because Hezbollah hasn't targeted civilians, which it has, but because of the way that that particular formulation tends to demonize what Iran and Hezbollah were doing and cast the pretty much parallel activities of the United States and Israel in an erroneously innocent light. Hezbollah was Iran's proxy force in a war fought in and over Lebanon by Syria, Israel, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and a dizzying constellation of different Lebanese militias. Yes, Iran funded Hezbollah, and Hezbollah sometimes targeted Israeli civilians. But what I wanted to get at is that in that conflict, and in many others besides, the U.S. had its own proxy force. In that particular case, it was Israel. And the IDF targeted, killed, and in the case of the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps, allowed to be killed many more civilians, both Lebanese and Palestinian, than Hezbollah ever did or would. Two wrongs don't make any kind of right, but if Iran's a state sponsor of terrorism because it's funded Hezbollah, then so, definitely, are we. When you get to that point in the show, you'll see that I didn't quite get around to the end of the argument. All right. That out of the way, he's Rob Morris, I'm John Coombs, and this is Talk for Democracy? America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers, and we're showing them the definition of American justice. 
there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. All right, hello and welcome to more Freedom Foundation live programming. Uh, this is Rob Morris, um, the guy behind the More Freedom Foundation. And uh, today we'll be chatting for about an hour and a half with John Coombs of Safe for Democracy, one of my favorite podcasts. Yeah, that's me. I'm John. I run a podcast called Safe for Democracy, and we look at the worst and most distressing uh, aspects of U.S. foreign policy over the last 50 or 60 years. And the reason I wanted to talk with John today is because he has lately been delving into the U.S. relationship with Iran. Sadly, I'm only two episodes into the four episodes he's published so far, but they are great. I'd say some of the digressions get a little more left-wing than is generally to my taste, but uh, the information conveyed is essential, uh, frankly, if you want to truly understand what's going on with the United States and Iran. You document a pretty sad, sordid history. Yeah. Um, for anybody who's listening to this series, this will be old news, but uh, for people who don't know anything about the U.S.'s relationship with Iran, something that might be really surprising to them is that up until 1953, it was an extremely positive relationship. Iranians in general loved people from the United States, and the reason that turned around was that in the 1950s, the Iranians, not for the first time, but for the first time in 50 years, more or less, had elected their own prime minister in an actual open election, a guy named Mohammad Mossadegh. And Mohammad Mossadegh threatened British and American interests uh, in oil in Iran, and the United States, together with Britain, fomented a coup against Mohammad Mossadegh, helped to reinstall the Iranian monarch, the Shah, which resulted in a 20-year brutal dictatorship under the same man. Pretty understandably, since that point, relationships have deteriorated between our two countries. Imagine that. I think it's very interesting the way that you highlighted the fact that it was it was a sort of a political choice and that the the U.S. under the Truman administration, I think you dis disagree with some historians on the topic, but that, that under the Truman administration, the U.S. was reluctant to get involved. But then under the new Eisenhower administration, sort of the gloves came off and the intervention happened. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much exactly right. And I want to point out when Rob says I disagree with with historians, I agree with some and disagree with. That. I'm not out of, I'm not out of my own on any any of these positions. But um, yeah, Truman, Truman and his secretary Secretary of State Dean Acheson were both less interested than the British were. So Britain had for a long time had oil interests in Iran. They had at least the oil harvesting aspects of Iran were operated more or less like a British colony. And was that, that, that the, the Anglo-Iranian oil company? That's what eventually became BP, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And Truman and Dean Acheson, although they were interested in maintaining a uh, stable supply of oil from Iran, were not particularly interested in reinforcing British colonial claims to Iranian oil. Which is what the uh, and uh huh, which which Eisenhower was uh, he had fewer qualms about, yeah. 
ended up doing pretty much exactly. exactly. Uh, before we get too far into the weeds, uh, I just want to talk a little bit more about why uh, we're having this conversation today. I had actually, I think even before the sort of Qatar crisis emerged on Sunday evening, uh, Monday morning, I had wanted to have this conversation with you because I think just generally the fact that we support Saudi Arabia uh, enthusiastically, endlessly, almost specifically in order to combat Iran, just strikes me as incredibly, well, unjust, not moral, but also just incredibly unwise. I think we're, we're backing the wrong horse in this fight. And I think uh, we should probably, before we get too much further into the history, talk about the Qatar crisis, what's going on with that, and how exactly and how inextricably linked that is with U.S. relationships with both Saudi Arabia and Iran. Yeah. Have you been following the uh, Qatar crisis in any uh, detail? So uh, what Rob knows is I've been doing I've been doing some preparatory stuff for law school and have been pretty busy this last couple of weeks. But uh, yeah, I know the general outlines. I'm sure sh- I'm sure you're a little bit more informed than I am. So on Sunday, uh, Saudi Arabia decided to sever diplomatic relations with Qatar based on a speech supposedly given by a Qatari leader that has subsequently been claimed to be fake news and has been disavowed by the news organization that provided it, claims that it was a result of hacking. I don't know how credible any of that is. No need to really get on the into the weeds on that. But Saudi Arabia has had a problem with Qatar for quite some time. There was another diplomatic flare-up back in 2014. But this is much more severe. And Saudi Arabia has closed all land and air links with Qatar. Qatari nationals president, present in Saudi Arabia has, have been informed that they have to leave. And they've been joined in this with differing degrees of enthusiasm by many other Arab countries. I believe Bahrain, Yemen, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt have all signed on. I've seen reports of effects of this going as far as the Philippines, but it's sort of that core of Arab countries that are making this a thing. And it has the potential to have extraordinary effects on Qatar. I think something Qatar relies on Saudi Arabia land links for something like 40% of its food. And uh, this sort of isolation for a country that is a, a very small very easy to isolate country is uh, is having a tremendous effect. Now, the justification that's being put forward, which is pretty transparently ridiculous and will appear so to any regular viewer of my channel, is that Qatar supports terrorism. And that's, that's why Saudi Arabia is doing this. This is a an interpretation that's been, I think, accept, accepted pretty uncritically and put forward by a lot of U.S. media organizations, and most prominently has been accepted uncritically by Donald Trump, who has decided to tweet about it. Those tweets in particular I found quite infuriating. Spent the morning flipping out about Donald Trump due to the Comey testimony and don't have much interest in doing much more of it here, but those tweets in particular, where he essentially took Saudi Arabia's justification for its actions against Qatar, internalized them, and celebrated them, was deeply, deeply frustrating. He was, I think, informed after the fact that the United States has a forward operating base for central command in Qatar. So it was a bit odd that he was celebrating diplomatic moves against what is one of our most important allies in the region. 
Well, you know, if you leave for a side for a moment, and I, I realize it's a big ask, but if you leave for a side, uh, leave to the side for a moment, the fact that he's president of the United States, and you just take Donald Trump as Donald Trump, it's understandable that he'd think any place with a name as strange sounding as Qatar or Qatar would yeah, be I'm home sorry. to terrorists, I've, right? I've been doing that. I, I, um, <laughs> I tried to... I made a note to myself before I started this. You know, it's it's cutter, it's cutter, it's not guitar. Oh, I wasn't trying to. No, you know. no, it's a, it's a valuable correction. I believe cutter is the appropriate way to pronounce it. You were saying. Just that, uh, you know, if you can forget that he's president for a moment, Donald Trump is a confused, racist old man. So it's more or less understandable that he'd be afraid of a place called Cutter and wouldn't assume that we'd have a base there. Now, remembering that he's president of the United States, that that ceases to be uh, uh, pardonable. There is that. Uh, Also, just sort of an interesting thing about the Trump administration that makes it different from all other administrations before it is that we we actually kind of know what's going on there. With administrations past, you know, from Obama and Bush back to George Washington, you know, you could like the president, you could dislike the president, but even if you were a supporter, you always had to wonder, you know, what is the balance of interests here? What is what is going on? I mean, for lack of a better term, uh, it's uh, Kremlinology, really, which was the science of trying to understand what the Kremlin was up to back during the Soviet Union. That always sort of applied to presidential administrations. You always had to wonder, sometimes in a positive sense, people would be like, oh, well, you know, Obama's making this decision because he's doing 12th dimensional chess and we don't really understand what's going on. Or, or, or you know, Bush did this because one or another of his advisors can, you know, pushed him in a certain direction. I mean, these are sort of very common interpretations of the last couple administrations. With Trump, it's it's really quite straightforward. You, we have a profoundly ignorant, progressively more deranged old man yelling at his television, and we have a bunch of people trying desperately to uh, rein him in. It, we've got we've got President Trump and his babysitters, and the conversation in Washington D.C. and in the world more generally is how can we limit the damage. There's no there's no mystery with the Trump administration. And I think that's actually a very key point of the crisis in, in Qatar. It is something that I've been warning about for quite some time. What we're seeing is the absence of American leadership, the complete absence. Not and not 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 leadership you disagree with, not leadership you wish was exerted in a different way, but its absence. I'm sure you disagree with me on this, but I, I see a value to the the Pax Americana as it's existed over the past uh, 70 years or so. Uh, you do an excellent job of documenting some of the ways that it's, some of the horrific effects that it's had. But I think on balance, it's been a big part of the fact that we haven't had any truly major region-wide wars in the past 70 years. And what we're seeing now is in the Qatar crisis is one of the effects of its absence. And uh, it's, it's not fun stuff. I have, in a video earlier this week, minimized the Qatar crisis, uh, implying that it is mostly about oil resources. And honestly, I think there's, there's some truth to that. I think Saudi Arabia sees uh, some benefit in the, the possibility well, to drive up oil prices. But, uh, but, I mean, this is, I don't think it's going to become a wider disaster, but it's the kind of surprise issue that we're going to keep seeing under the Trump administration and its just abandonment of leadership. So we've described what exactly the Saudis have done to Qatar, right? They've isolated them physically and diplomatically. 
But there, there was several other reasons that the Saudis gave for this. For this, uh, well, they've uh, they've they've issued an ultimatum, which is pretty extraordinary. I've had uh, people have likened it to the the ultimatum that uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire issued to Serbia at the outset of World War One. It's a ten-point ultimatum list, listing the things that Qatar must do to to avoid further further conflict. It's unspecified what that might imply, but there's a distinct. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't believe it credible, but there's a distinct threat of implied threat of military action if they don't comply with this 10-point ultimatum, which is pretty, uh, pretty extraordinary. And just for folks of mine, because they might they might be a little less up on this than people who are following your videos, in addition to the 10-point ultimatum and integrated into the 10-point ultimatum, there are several justifications that Saudi Arabia and the people that have come along with them, that is Bahrain, Yemen, the UAE, and Egypt, uh, have offered for what they've done. And I, I think a lot of these are disingenuous and just as infuriating to me as they are to Rob. So there's several here. So first is support for terrorism, which is specifically that has supported the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a political party in Egypt. Yeah, Qatar um, has supported the, the Muslim Brotherhood, yeah. Uh-huh. And also the Al-Nusra Front, which is part of Al-Qaeda in Syria. What's interesting there is that the Saudis have also funded the Al-Nusra Front in Syria. Uh, the Al Nusra Front in Syria, and also I think they've had a falling out with the Muslim Brotherhood. It, it's it's interesting because the specific sort of terror allegations have a veneer of of credibility. I think there is a distinction between the way that Saudi Arabia now funds terror and the way that Qatar now funds terror. So Saudi Arabia, since nine eleven, since the attacks of Al Qaeda on Saudi Arabia, I always get these years wrong, but more or less between 2003 and 2005, they've become much more careful in the ways that they do it. I spoke to Christopher Davidson, the author of Shadow Wars, a couple weeks back, and he had talked about how these pathways are much more subtle. They, you know, they're, they're more careful about it. They make sure there's front groups and front groups and front groups. Money is done in a less, is provided in a less obvious way. I mean, the, the Saudi Arabian government still absolutely funds a wide range of jihadist and problematic groups, but, you know, it avoids the ones that make it onto the U.S. terror list. You know, it avoids the, you know, it, 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 there's a lot more subterfuge involved now. Qatar has, I think, rationally gotten a lot of criticism because they, 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 they act like Saudi Arabia circa 1986 or circa 2000. You know, they just fund anybody and don't really don't particularly care whether they've been officially disapproved by the U.S. government. You know they do it officially through the through the government. And of course, there's massive private funding from the populations of all these countries. Um, so th- there is there is a veneer of credibility there, but it is it is a very shaky. And the the interesting thing to me there is that the the Muslim Brotherhood specifically mentioned in a couple of places. Uh, would you call the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization? Oh man, you know the 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 it's something I've wrestled with a lot. Like, where do you where do you actually draw the dividing lines between Muslim Brotherhood? So it, it, it's to to simply say, like with Al Qaeda, with ISIS, it's very straightforward mm-hmm. what you've got there. With the Muslim Brotherhood, you've got all manner of you know if you go if you go back in the timeline, it's sort of deciding. It's like, well, was Ayman al Zawahiri part of the Muslim Brotherhood or wasn't he? This is the current leader of Al Qaeda, and mm-hmm. they both come from different offshoots. I think there's a lot of time and effort in the U.S. invested in 
trying to distinguish these groups when uh, certainly in in Saudi in Syria where we keep hearing about the the moderate opposition which is you know includes individuals that could very well have been shooting at US well the actual individuals that shot at US soldiers in Iraq tended to die but you know people who were on that team you know have joined a different group and now they're the moderate opposition i mean there's that sort of thing but but also with the muslim brotherhood are we talking about the egyptian muslim brotherhood are we talking about how, how the muslim brotherhood Muslim Brotherhood groups act in, you know, I, I believe Hamas is generally concerned to be uh, considered to be a Muslim Brotherhood outfit. I mean, it's it, it's a it's a much more complex organization, and it, sorry, it's it's much more complex organizations than Al Qaeda or ISIS. So I know I'm not comfortable applying a blanket, you know, blanket statement along the lines of, oh, the Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization because it's not one organization. So. So if it would be difficult by any lights to apply a blanket statement calling the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization, can you think of a reason it would be included here specifically? Considering that Bahrain, Yemen, and the UAE are all Gulf countries, and Egypt is on this list kind of just strangely on this same list? Well, we're talking about Morsi, is that... uh... Yeah, it, it's, it seems to me as though Egypt's participation in this particular provocation may be in part due to an inclusion... Muslim Brotherhood here. That is that pressuring the Qataris to stop supporting a dissident party, which is in opposition to the dictatorial military regime in Egypt right now. Oh, absolutely. No question. Uh, It's also very interesting. I've seen some reporting on Egypt's participation in this. And uh, what's interesting for Egypt's participation in the Qatar crisis is that Egypt, the Qatar government, doesn't just fund Muslim Brotherhood. It also transfers a lot of money to the Egyptian government and to Sisi. So I think there was, there was a, saw a news report that was like, oh, yes, of course, we're participating in this. But no, 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 you can still keep cashing their checks. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, an, it's one of the factors that leads me to believe that this is not a, a serious crisis yet. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. But there are a lot of elements that want it to be a more serious crisis. Mm-hmm. I, I think I've talked a lot this week in fact, in a video called uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia's tobacco moment, uh, suggesting that Saudi Arabia may be at a moment similar to the one that the big tobacco lobby in the United States was in the 90s, where they're, they're actually very seriously in danger of losing the uncritical support that they always had, not because of justice or truth or anything like that, but because the because the calculus is just changing. The positives that Saudi Arabia provides are no longer outweighing the very obvious negatives that are involved with the relationship. I almost wonder if this Qatar crisis isn't an attempt to sort of desperately bring these issues to a head while they've still got any kind of support from the U.S., which I believe is actually diminishing. Yeah, so I was actually going to speak to that. So several points here, we don't have to go through all this, but one of the big things that the Qataris do that neither the Saudis nor we tend to like is that they haven't taken a side in this not yet a war between, well, I was going to say Sunni and Shia countries in the Middle East, but really between countries aligned with Saudi Arabia and countries aligned with Iran. The Qatar has not chosen a side. Yeah, I've seen that. That's that. That is the crucial point, and I think why this this brings in the relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia and between the United States is uh, I've seen a lot of I've seen a number of different listings of the ultimatum, these sort of ten points or nine points or eight points, it depends that Saudi Arabia has delivered to Qatar. Number one 
in all of those listings of the ultimatums, which vary, number one is always Qatar must sever relationship, sever the relationship with Iran, which is pretty extraordinary because I think it's, it's very clear to those who are outside of the Trump administration uh, or know anything about the region that that is the main issue with Saudi Arabia. And that is the main reason that they're pushing this. The fact that Qatar, I think valuably, is willing to act as an intermediary in the region. They're willing to stay friendly with both Iran and Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia really does not like that. Yeah. So let me lay out a theory for you and for our audience. And, and you tell me what you think about this, right? So this, the Saudis, for the reason that you're describing, may be feeling that their position, not, not necessarily on a four-year or an eight-year timeline, but in a, on, a, on a decade and a half, two-decade, three-decade timeline, with regard to the United States in the Middle East is becoming less stable. That is, that they're not going to be our necessary ally anymore. And there's, oh, there's I, a few... I, I, I think it's a four years or less. Um, well... Uh, four years or well, less. If we're talking about Donald Trump's four years, I'm not sure about that. But there's, there, there's a couple of factors there. And from what I can see, maybe one of the most important ones is that Iran is, in certain important respects, liberalizing. You know, Hassan Rouhani has been the president of Iran now since, what, 2013? Yeah, and he's making efforts to reach rapprochement with the United States and with other states in the Middle East. And he actually, he called he called the emir of uh, Qatar in, in May to ask for cooperation in, in stabilizing the crisis situation in the Middle East, right? So once, once Donald Trump is gone, once this insane old man is out of office, it's likely that the next president of the United States is going to be liberal. And it's likely that they're going to be looking more critically at this kind of illogical crusade that we're waging with Saudi Arabia against Iran, right? I don't even so, think, I don't even think, you know, it has to be a change of administration for this to change. I think, really, really? I, honestly, so Trump, Trump doesn't learn much. But I think when he is caught out in a particularly embarrassing way, not necessarily in the public sphere, because the public doesn't really know enough about these issues to care. Mm -hmm. But I got to think that even Donald Trump is a bit embarrassed that he found himself on Twitter publicly endorsing diplomatic actions against the country that has the forward operating base for the U.S. military in the region. Um, I got to think. Now, and I, I, fair enough. Fair I enough. But only... I think I think he's got even even Trump has got to feel a little bit burned by Saudi Arabia as as the the true realities of this situation have been expressed to him. Well, I mean, it, Trump's Trump's ability to manage this stuff is diminishing, so it's it's possible that you're right, and he won't be able to put any kind of spin on this. But I mean, you know, Trump's Trump's on board with or in the same boat as what 40, 45 percent of the United States that they get all their news from Fox. Well, you know, none of those people are going to find out that we have a Ford. Well. I don't, know, I don't know about Fox News' coverage. Maybe they're improving. But I would say the majority of those people aren't going to have the point hammered home to them that Qatar is a military ally of ours. What they're going to have hammered home to them is that Saudi Arabia is applying necessary pressure to Qatar to get them to sever ties with Iran. Because that 40%, along with Donald Trump, have been indoctrinated for decades to think that Iran is like the number one enemy of the free world, right? Absolutely. And this is not about, that's important to emphasize, this is not about Trump. This gets to the fact that I think as recently as 2015 or 2016, uh, the, the United States still holds that Iran is the main state sponsor of terrorism, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, it's just, just, just straight up wrong. So the final element of this theory I have going is if you believe, as I believe, 
that the Saudis believe that Donald Trump, because he's this kind of crazy dude who's been indoctrinated by the American right wing, will never reverse his position on Iran. What Saudi Arabia is doing right now through this crisis is having had Donald Trump visit in the last few weeks and confirm his support by Saudi Arabia by way of a $100 billion military agreement. They're using their confidence in their position with the United States right now to provoke a crisis with Qatar and by way of Qatar with Iran in order to kind of re-solidify their position as the chief U.S. ally in the region against Iran. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no question that that is because, you know, because of the, the, the orb trip, the sort of the big show in Saudi Arabia that we had last weekend that also interestingly, very effectively deferred, diverted attention from the re-election of Iran's moderate, oh gosh, president or prime minister? President. Yeah, that very effectively diverted attention from that fact, but it also made it very clear that Trump was perfectly happy to let them go do whatever, which yeah. may not have been entirely true. But yes, they absolutely- Two, two points. Two, this, they think yeah. this is the last chance, I think. So two points right there. First, as far as us being distracted from the Iranian elections, I think it's more a matter of we're only going to pay attention to Iranian elections if there's some dissident party that we can get behind on Twitter. But if they proceed in a normal democratic way like they did last month, then we're not going to pay any attention at all because we're not interested in Iran functioning as a, well, not like a pure democracy, but, you know, the the version of democracy they have. We're not interested in it functioning the way it's supposed to. Yes, that, that, um, that is absolutely true. And there was a very, uh, there was a narrative that was put forward very strongly that Rouhani, the guy who was willing to work with Obama, was going to lose terribly. And I think mm-hmm. there were a lot of those, those sorts of articles put forward about the hardline resurgence in Iran and, and you know, get worried, it's going to get worse. I think it was actually, that's probably a legitimate expectation considering the switch in Iran rhetoric, not in Iran mm-hmm. action, but in top line Iran rhetoric from uh, from Obama to Trump that might have been a legitimate expectation, but that was that was crushed. Uh, Rouhani crushed the hardline resurgence. He got fifty seven percent of the vote, and the hardline guy, the choice of the supreme leader that was supposed to beat him, got something like thirty seven percent of the vote. It's despite the fact that Rouhani has been unable to deliver the economic turnaround he was he was expected to because the United States has only taken an off some of the sanctions and has actually continued to make banking with Iran tremendously difficult. So I think Iran wants to come to the table. I think Iran has wanted to come to the table since uh, since the end of the Iran-Iraq war. From the, through the Bush administration, through the Obama administration, that open hand has been refused. Yeah, and it's uh, it's been almost entirely illogical. It's like, uh, it's like, uh, so you go to, you go to an elementary school, right? Mm-hmm. And at the first day of school, you've been there since first grade. You're now in fifth grade. First day of school, new kid shows up. You kick that kid right in the face, right? <laughs> yeah. And then for, for a whole year after that, that kid doesn't like talking to you. And then from seventh grade up to the end of high school, the kid's trying to talk to you every year. And you're like, not with you, kid. You didn't talk to me for that one year. I realize this is, this is a kind of a labored metaphor, but... You know, we really screwed with Iran. You know, they had like pretty legitimate grievances and we've never really had that much of a grievance with them. No, I think, well, okay, I, th- I think it's actually important now because I'm sure if some of my patrons that I know are listening to this, that that inspired a lot of anger, that one comment. But I think that anger comes out of the fact that while the things that Iran does to us are publicized ad infinitum 
they you know are 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 celebrated and worried over and thought about in every mainstream news source and at even greater length in certain other news sources certain basic facts that are historical record and quite obvious are ignored so let's i mean let's let's take a quick look at things on the ledger that iran does do that are against yeah just just to clarify when i say we've never had that much of a reason yeah the hostage crisis happened obviously but it also happened in response to a 20-year dictatorship sponsored by the united states and because, I mean, the, the immediate cause was that the United States was going to give shelter to that same dictator. We were going to take in the Shah, which is what led to crowds of students taking over the United States embassy. And you know, I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm still a bit I'm still a bit miffed by the hostage crisis. But I think that the uh, I think that the, <laughs> I think that the the scales were were tipped way, 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 way in the other direction by the simple fact of the Iran-Iraq war. Yeah. So also it's worth mentioning, and I think it's actually very important in contemporary politics because we've got Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, who is sort of celebrated as the adult in the room. He's the guy who goes around and apologizes for Donald Trump's tweets. He's the guy who goes and reassures our European allies. He's a very serious, very well-read fellow. I find him admirable in a lot of ways. But an important thing to know about James Mattis, and I think what got him disinvited from the Obama administration, is his very extreme views on Iran. And his extreme views out of Iran come, come from a very, very understandable place. And I'm talking about the Marine barracks bombing in Beirut in, I believe, 1983. I should have these figures in front of me, but my understanding is it was hundreds, as many as 300 U.S. Marines were killed in a Hezbollah suicide bombing. And now that was one of the formative events of Secretary of Defense uh, James Mattis's military career. Well, he's a Marine, they were Marines, and he, I think very understandably, has a deep well of anger at Iran. But I think it's important to emphasize, there are other things, there's, I think, was it Leon Klinghoffer? So these are, these are actions by groups that are generally conceded to have been supported by Iran. Iran does not concede this. Iran does not claim responsibility for these actions, but it's generally pretty clear that Iran was responsible for these. And we, these crimes, and they were crimes, are rehearsed and, and repeated and emphasized in media today, as is the hostage crisis. It's important to emphasize that these, these things that are talked about, I think the most recent outrage that can be attributed can be attributed by the United States to Iran, not by Iran, not claimed by Iran, is a large bombing in Argentina that happened in the late 90s. That's, we're talking about stuff that are a decade or two removed from today. And it's important to remember that throughout the 1980s, the United States was openly, eagerly supporting Saddam Hussein in a horrific war of aggression that was waged against Iran. In, in which as much as and likely much more than one million people died, including upwards of 100,000 civilians. Yes. So I think that while the Marine barracks bombing is something, is a crime and a horror, I think you have to put that in the balance. Those 300 Marine heroes who were slaughtered, you have to put that in balance against the million Iranians that were killed. And also... Keep in mind the fact that Iran, I believe, to this day denies responsibility for the Marine barracks bombing. And that we certainly, though we don't talk about it much, nobody was denying responsibility for the Iran-Iraq war. In fact, we were celebrating it. 
Yeah, and uh, again, links between Iran and the Beirut barracks bombing, probable, not definite. Um, but if the United States was held responsible for every death carried out by every party that we had ever funded, because um, I'm always trying to bring these comparisons back to what if we applied these standards to ourselves? Oh, come on, John. Uh, you, know, you, know, you know that holds no water. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know nobody cares. Um, I agree with you. No, I mean, I, I think that's a worthwhile exercise. I think that's, uh-huh. I think that's basic philosophy of morals and, and whatnot that everyone should be a little more invested in. But, uh, but yeah, that's not, you're, you're not going to move the dial at all, uh, sadly. I mean, well, no, that's not true. You will move the dial with, I think, people who are first getting to know these issues, but you're not going to move the dial with anybody in power, uh, anybody... Uh, you know anybody who who's already formed uh, the sort of convictions about uh, about how how these things work. Sorry. Well, if people have formed uh, if people have formed strong and immoral convictions, you're probably right. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to come down so hard on that. But yeah, just, no, no, no. So I, I think in the next thing to move move towards. Yeah. Uh, with talking about what Iran does to us, and I think is the genesis of the classification of Iran as the main state sponsor of terrorism, is their actions, mostly at this, well, no, definitely actions, because they are large supporters of Hezbollah for sure, and I believe Hamas as well, is actions that are taken and encouraged against Israel. And I think that those can't really be viewed outside of the context of what happened in 2002, of George W. Bush's axis of evil speech. We just sort of, we all know that happened. We all know that a, ah, for, we have a Guardian, of, another interested, well, okay, Guardian of Truth just chimed in to say that Hezbollah is not a terrorist organization. I think we can, we, we can, address, the, uh, we can address that in a minute. Just let me uh, uh, make this point with the axis of evil speech, right? We all know that he got up there and said that Iraq, Iran, and North Korea present an axis of evil that, that you know, must be opposed, must be crushed. And uh, within, within a year, we had crushed one of them. I mean, this was, there were no legalities here. There, were no, there was no, you know, actual constitutional declaration. But, but make no mistake, the axis of evil speech was a declaration of war. And throughout 2000, you know, from 2003 to 2011, and now once again, we had massive, massive military commitments and occupations on two countries bordering Iran. So Iran is right in between Iraq and Afghanistan. We had large military presences, and we had essentially declared war on these countries at the outset of the Bush administration. So its actions against Israel, our most prominent ally in the region, I think become very understandable in that context. And once again, I think that people are gravitating towards old, old statements. The amount of times that I get Ahmadinejad's statements thrown at me um, in, in YouTube comments, it, it's extraordinary. I mean, Ahmadinejad has not been the president of Iran for quite some time. Also, Ahmadinejad. Yeah, very long time. Also, Ahmadinejad's career was created by the axis of evil speech. That guy had spent a lot of time running for office. Uh, he, you know, he, that guy couldn't get on the city council of Tehran because I think generally, I, I can't speak to this, but I, my suspicion is that because he was just a little too extreme for Iran in the 90s, which wanted to move move towards openness and towards the United States uh, under the regime of President Khatami. Uh, he just, you know, there wasn't an audience for what he was pitching. 
axis of evil happens, the invasion, the occupations of Iran and, and of Iraq and Afghanistan happen. All of a sudden, you know, he gets elected mayor of Tehran, and then a year or two after that, he's the president of the country. The statements of Khomeini, the supreme leader, who hopefully won't last too much longer. You know, I'm not sure if he's made. He's probably made some virulent anti-Israel statements since then. But, but I just don't think you can look at these at the 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 position towards Israel, who is our sort of most public ally in the region, without being aware of this context that we declared war on Iran in 2002. Yeah, and it, it, we we did this in the last show, but just anybody who hasn't seen a map of the Middle East recently, look this up, because Iran is sandwiched between two very long borders, one of which is with Iraq, and on the other side is Afghanistan. So after the axis of evil speech, we pretty promptly destroyed the two governments in each of those states uh, and replaced them with pro-United States, anti-Iranian governments. Uh, they had very good reason to feel threatened. Yes. Well, actually, well, actually, we, we were never able to establish a truly anti-Iranian government in Iraq. We did them. It's funny, if, if you do take this sort of like position that Iran is some kind of immortal enemy or something, then gosh, gosh, <laughs> is the Bush invasion of Iraq stupid? Because, uh, you know, Maliki, Alaki, Maliki and the, cur- uh, the current guy in Iraq, is that Abadi? Uh, you'd have to tell me. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, I mean these guys. These guys are Shia. It's a Shia majority country, and uh, you know we we essentially gifted the country to Iran. Yeah. Again, anybody, especially in in my viewership, who's not aware there, Shia Islam is the minority party. If you divide Islam between Sunni and Shia Islam, right? And most Arab and Middle Eastern countries are majority Sunni. Iraq is one of the few countries in the Middle East, along with Iran, which is Shiite majority. And under Saddam Hussein, it was ruled by its Sunni minority. So we effectively converted Iraq into a Shia country, which, you know, I have no beef with that. There should, no one should have a beef with that. But we've, for whatever reason, thrown in with the Sunni side of this religion. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's also a, um, uh, I think that's a valuable broader point. Uh, we hear a lot about this immortal battle between Shia and Sunni. If it was an immortal battle, the Sunni would have won a long time ago. We've got, yeah. what, dozens of Islamic countries. And as far as majority Shia there, you've got Iran, Azerbaijan, Iraq, and Bahrain. That's it. You know, that, that's, those are the Shia countries. That, that, that is the, the legitimate extent of Iraq's possible hegemonic ambitions. You know, that's it. Yeah. Uh, th- and, th- th- and- there's, there's nothing there. And it, it's not entirely clear. So, you know, most people in the United States first heard about the difference between Sunni and Shia Islam when Iraq devolved into civil war. Right. And we said what we always say, which is that, you know, nobody could have known. These are these are ancient tensions that are always boiling just beneath the surface. Of course, none of that is true. And the fact that we've thrown in with one side of this religion against the other. Again, like I said, I'm always trying to reverse these things just to expose the ridiculousness of it. But imagine if Iran, imagine if Iran got together with Mexican and Canadian Catholics to make war on the United States because it's majority Protestant. That's just nuts. Like, it just sounds insane, but that's pretty much what we're doing. Yeah, no, it, 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 makes, it makes no sense. I think I... So we, we, we were going we to address somebody's concern about uh, Hezbollah, right? Yes, we, we, we are. Uh, and that's an interesting, so uh, I think you brought up uh, Israel in the last one of our conversations. And I've got, I think I've got to sort of fess up here. 
I really don't like uh, dealing with Israel issues on my channel. Uh, my audience is about 40% U.S. and 60% uh, everybody else. And yeah. uh, with Israel, I think you've got to acknowledge. So if I say something that's pro-Israel, I'm going to alienate my entire international audience. And if I say something that is anti-Israel, I'm going to alienate my entire U.S. audience. And I think that's I think that's something that's not fully understood. So just with that, so that with that proviso, let's get into it and see how many subscribers I leave. Yeah, I can I can take the lead here. So well, yeah, I, I, okay, go for it. <laughs> well, just just as, just as far no, not not to try to express a a view on Rob's part, but just just to lay down some history here. So Hezbollah, right? This is a name that we rarely hear, except in relation to Israel, and because it sounds strange foreign and is always linked with terrorism we're just we're afraid of the name right but hezbollah comes from a very particular political context which is after the partition or after the creation of the state of israel the majority of its palestinian arab population left and a huge amount of that population a huge portion of it ended up in lebanon which is a tiny pretty much perpetually unstable little country created by the french right which is right on top of israel to the north yeah, it was sort of intentionally created to defend um, a Christian minority to give them their own country. Exactly. And exactly. Yeah. Sort of. I think that minority is largely. Well, I think there's they, they, you can't do a census in Lebanon anymore because they refuse because uh -huh. they don't want because they're no longer a. Well, yeah, it's it's pretty. I mean, there's a massive Christian Lebanese diaspora. You know, Carlos Slim in Mexico, uh, others, and also the uh, they probably fair to point out that they've been uh, outbred pretty significantly over the past 50 years. Yeah. So, so there's, there's this large... Country. Sorry, go ahead, Aaron. It's a pretty screwed up country, is what I was just saying about So never, never particularly stable, never particularly able to really control everything that was going on within the country. And there's a large Palestinian refugee population living there, right? Well, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, ends up establishing power bases in Lebanon, because that's where a ton of these Palestinian refugees live, and they launch attacks from Lebanon into Israel. Now, is that terrorism? You know, maybe. It ends up with civilians killed. Is it a national liberation movement? Yeah, that also. So I, th I think... So I what think happens? The, I think the from the general U.S. opinion, uh -huh. that, that make, and officially defined as such, uh, uh -huh. that makes Hezbollah a terrorist organization. No, no, I'm, I'm, talking about, I'm still talking about the PLO, man. Oh, okay, sorry. Early years. I'm talking about this, like the mid-70s. But... Uh, okay, well, any, Let's not devote half an hour to this, but yes, continue. Yeah, sorry, sorry. So anyway, Israel Israel invades Lebanon in order to get to attack the PLO. The Syria invades from the north, and Iran sponsors a group called Hezbollah to help Lebanon fight Israel, or really to help Palestinian refugees fight Israel. It comes from a particular political moment, Hezbollah, and it's not, you know, we, we imagine terrorist, you know, quote-unquote terrorist organizations as existing in this political vacuum where their only objective is just to, just to willy-nilly murder people. Hezbollah has committed acts that you should define as terrorism, right? Targeting civilians, Israeli civilians. But I think when you try to, when you, when you call things terrorist organizations, I think it's a reductive phrase that fails to capture the entire political context of the thing you're talking about. Mm, yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think there's something to this. What I think is important to emphasize with the U.S. attitude towards Israel is one of uncritical support. Uh, the yeah. world's attitude towards Israel is almost the opposite of that. When it comes to, and, and sort of the classic uh, way to deal with that, well, it's just widespread anti-Semitism. 
frankly, when it comes to European attitudes towards Israel, uh, mm -hmm. I find it very easy to characterize that as anti-Semitism. Uh, I, I think I think Europe uh, owes the Jews a lot and will continue to do so for all time. But for the majority of the world, the sort of non-white people in the world, when they look at Israel, they see sort of European colonialists. They see white people telling brown people what to do. And while I would argue there's much more to it than that, uh, I think I understand that approach. And I think there needs to be a little more understanding of how the rest of the world sees Israel. And I think a slightly less uncritical support of the current administration in Israel. That was pretty guarded, I know. But, uh, but uh, that's, uh, that's my position. If we, if we want to try to circle things back up here, I think an easy and per, pretty much safe political position to take with Israel is the same one that you can take with Saudi Arabia, which is that when you create an ally in the Middle East that can do no wrong, they will use the umbrella of that protection to do wrong. You know, Israel, the more that we give them unqualified support, the more they expand settlements in the Palestinian territories. You know, we give Saudi Arabia an extra $100 billion in weapons and they immediately move to isolate Qatar. Uh, the, uh, so I think on the Hezbollah issue, I think that's important to talk about Iranian. There's just a couple quick points I want to make on Iranian yeah. support for Hezbollah and Hamas. I think that that sort of, there was always some support, uh, not, I think not always support for Hamas, but now certainly since the Access for Evil speech, there's been support to both of those organizations. And I think that's Iran's sort of desperate outreach for any kind of sort of win and public, public help. I, I, the, the fact that Iran supports organizations that are anti-Israel uh, does not help them with the United States. I think it helps them with almost everybody else. So I think that is the context within which you have to see that. It's also the genesis of this the ridiculous statement that Iran supports more terrorism than anybody else, uh, because they do support Hezbollah, they do support Hamas, and the U.S. government has defined these organizations that many view as view in a more nuanced way, straightforwardly as terrorist organizations. And I think that you you can argue with that with defining Hezbollah and Hamas in that way. But uh, I think what you can't have an argument about, and I think is straightforwardly ridiculous, is that when we think terrorism, we are not, most of us, talking about actions that are taken out, uh, actions against Israel. We are talking about high-profile terrorist attacks, the sorts of things that uh, we saw on London Bridge, uh, was that just last week? The things that we yeah. see saw in Paris, in Belgium, in the United States, in Bernardino, Orlando. And it's important to emphasize that every single one of those attacks that I just listed, and thousands more besides, the, 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 the sort of ceaseless horror that never gets covered in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nigeria, whatnot, all of that comes from Saudi Arabia. I was uh, shocked and pleased to see CNN, and I think it, I, I highlighted it in my Saudi Arabia's tobacco moment uh, video. You should check out. I, I put a link to the CNN segment. CNN actually put it together and was like 96% of documented terrorist actions since, or maybe it was 94% of documented terrorist actions since 2001 are related to Sunni, Wahhabi, Saudi influence. Something like 4% are related to other Islamic. So... So how exactly is the country that can at most be credited with 4% of terrorist actions the main supporter of, of state terrorism? I think that that's the 
crucial thing to remember when we're talking about terrorism versus Iran or Saudi Arabia is that yeah. Iran, though it has a, a negative history with the United States and that's worth worth remembering and worth pointing to, hasn't done much of anything in the sort of war on terror post 9-11 era to directly attack the United States, to directly attack the West. Uh, I think they actually consciously got out of that business after 9-11 because they recognized that the PR potential was pretty horrific. Yeah, and just to, just to hammer this home, because I kind of I got into the weeds with the Hezbollah there, is the two groups that we always refer to as, as Iranian sponsorees, sponsor, whatever the word would be, are Hezbollah and Hamas, which are two organizations that are laser-focused on the Palestinian situation in Israel. The organizations funded by Saudi Arabia are focused on every country in the entire world. Um, there's a pretty serious difference between the scope and the nature of the political violence that each of those two countries are trying to sponsor. And uh, the kind of terror, we should be more worried about terrorism that happens in the Muslim world. But the kind of terrorism that we are worried about is coming all from Saudi Arabia and not from Iran. Yes. I think Martin Pierre Frenette just made a good point. Uh, and what many do not understand is that Israel being a democratic country is not a monoblock. It's not all good or all evil. I think that's a very good point, and I think one of my main quibbles with the current administration in Israel is that it's working working very hard to turn Israel into a monoblock, as, as uh, Fernet puts it, into a monolithic entity, and I think, that's, I think that's a real shame. We talked last show about how hardliners in two different countries can reinforce each other, and when the Israeli government under Benjamin Netanyahu expands uh, settlements in the Palestinian territories, they generally provoke violence on the part of the Palestinians, which reinforces the position of hardliners in Israel. Um, it's a self-reinforcing relationship. Yeah. Actually, specifically, so to get to the, to take it back to the Qatar crisis, I think it's worth pointing out that ISIS chose this moment to carry out its first serious terrorist attack in Iran. In Tehran, they killed, I think uh, the, the body count is now up to 17 people. They attacked the Iranian parliament and they attacked, I believe, the mausoleum for the Ayatollah Khomeini. Yeah, that's and, great. And it's, uh, I think that's exactly the sort of thing that you're talking about. It's We've got a very delicate situation, an evolving crisis. I think Iran right now has to hold itself back from running to the support of Qatar, because if it does, then the Saudis get exactly what they want and... Uh, uh, and a broader crisis with more uncritical U.S. support. So ISIS is, oh well, this is a this is a terrible, dangerous situation. Let's let's uh, let's pour some oil on the fire. Uh, so I, I don't I do not think that the timing of this first ISIS attack on Iran that's going to make them more angry is is just a coincidence. I think that that I think that was very conscious on their part. And it's yeah, it's and uh, so we, we tend to think of terrorists to the, as these crazy psychos. But there's also some rationality in how they operate. They, they, they try to find a delicate situation and they make it worse. I think that's why we're seeing why we've had two large terrorist attacks in London over the past month in the run up to the, sorry, one in Manchester, one in London. I, Mancunians, if any Mancunians are listening, I apologize. But we've had two large terrorist attacks in the United Kingdom in the weeks before the British election. I mean, these hardliners, these consciously destabilizing elements are, are eager to jump in to these situations and make them worse. Yeah, I mean, you got to remember, because sometimes, you know, it's hard to keep that in sight. But when somebody launches a terrorist attack, their objective is that you respond with fear. 
that you respond by electing another hardliner, that you respond by electing someone who's going to take military action against the people that those terrorists claim to represent, because that's going to create more radicals among that population. And what people... So, so you, I think you're probably right in saying that this this Qatar crisis is not maybe yet worrying about, but I'm 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 pretty worried about the attacks in Iran because what people might not realize is that if you look at the Middle East, there aren't that many really stable countries around, right? Especially if you don't include Kuwait, uh, Qatar, the UAE, because they're they're you know they're pseudo countries. They're these these petro states. Iran, as much as we don't like what they do. Iran is a very stable state. You know, they haven't had a terrorist attack in decades. And there's a reason for that. It's because they're pretty stable and they've been liberalizing because of that stability. And, you know, terrorist attacks in the United States pretty quickly turned us into a security state. And uh, I think it would be a tragedy if, you know, a series of attacks sponsored by ISIS or Saudi Arabia or even clandestinely by the United States were to destabilize Iran to the point where they had to start electing hardliners again. I think that would be a tragedy. Yeah. And I, I think that's probably, I mean, I guess, we're, well, we're lucky that this attack happened uh, after the Iranian election. Yeah. Uh, rather than before, because uh, I think it, it probably would have hurt Rouhani. Yeah. I mean, it, it's extraordinary the way that these these elements that profess to be, to hate each other with such such vigor end up working in tandem. Yeah. Which is which is which is fascinating. The sort of the budding relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which is another sort of fascinating element that uh, we probably shouldn't get into it. Ah, guardian, uh, guardian of not to bring it back to Trump, but yeah, Ruth yeah. um, made an excellent point also about the attacks in Iran. Trump just said the attacks were a result of the evil they promote, which is just that was. I mean, that was pretty extraordinary. That's, I have a hard time even coming up with the analogy on our side. Such an absurd statement. It, 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 it just throws out so many of the basics about interactions to... Oh, well, you should be happy. I mean, uh, Trump's uh, approach to uh, the London bombings, going after the London mayor, uh, definitely, almost certainly guaranteed another couple of labor seats in today's election. Uh, anyway, I, I, don't really even have, I, don't really even, I don't even really have the words for that kind of thing. So some some people are saying, some people are thinking, and I think they're probably not wrong, that what Saudi Arabia has done with Qatar, uh, this I, this political diplomatic isolation, partly as a result of taking the military deal with Trump that he presented when he was there on his visit to touch the orb as kind of permission, tacit, tacit approval of whatever they should happen to choose to do with Qatar, right? So an interesting thing in international relations is... Um, what you actually want to do as you conduct your foreign policy of the world is be really predictable. You want to be predictable because that allows other countries, especially if you're powerful, to do what you want. If you make it clear exactly what you want is, they generally do what you want. So an example of this going wrong is that at the end of the Iran-Iraq war, you know, Iraq had been an American uh, ally. I was, I was just thinking of this. Okay. All right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Bring it. Bring, bring it. So at the end of the Iran-Iraq war, Saddam Hussein had been a longtime American ally. And we gave him, not intentionally, or supposedly not intentionally, but I think really not intentionally, uh, tacit approval to invade Kuwait, partly to help himself out economically at the end of this disastrous war. Well, it turns out it had not actually been our policy to allow Iraq to take over Kuwait. And uh, we then had to, well, you know, quote unquote, had, had to invade Kuwait in order to expel Iraq, right? Well, Donald Trump has said repeatedly, 
uh, on the campaign trail, I'm not sure afterwards, but definitely on the campaign trail, that he wanted to make our foreign policy less predictable. Well, one consequence of that is you get countries like Saudi Arabia doing what they can to isolate people in their own regions. Well, you know, I, you know it, the, the problem is you can't talk about what Trump wants or doesn't want. But I think m- more crisis in the Middle East is generally not what we want. And I think not being able to tell what it is we want in the Middle East is a big part of provoking said crisis. Mm. I agree completely. I, yeah, just on that, the, so I believe it was the uh, U.S. ambassador to Iraq sat down with Saddam Hussein. He brought up Kuwait, and I think she just said something very benign, uh, very benign along the lines of, she was like, well, we don't really have a position on these border issues. And, you know, it's not like she said, go invade Kuwait, but, you know, she was like, oh, we don't have a position on these border issues. And uh, yeah, Saddam Hussein interpreted that as carte blanche. And absolutely, the Saudis interpreted their orb moment, not their orb moment specifically, but the, the sort of entire weekend and the uncritical support expressed by Trump, they interpreted that as, yeah, we can go do this. And, uh, and they did this. So, so say this say this crisis does not resolve itself immediately. Say the Egyptians stay in it. What's what are we looking at here? Well, I don't I don't think the the Egyptians really will. But I think I think Egypt's I think Egypt is happy to stand with Saudi Arabia publicly. The the concern is with Qatar with Qatar, uh, the the cutting off of those land links. I think that's I think that is a big deal. I'm sure there's already a thriving black market and smuggling operation going. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a problem, but I don't know that it's, I, I just can't see it escalating to a, to a military involvement. Yeah. I meant, I meant more, I'm not expecting this to develop into a general conflict in the Middle East, but rather that the stuff that Saudi Arabia is looking for, you know, a severing of relations with Iran, you know, shutting down Al Jazeera, at least ceasing to fund Al Jazeera, is that kind of stuff going to come to pass? Oh, well, the the, yeah, the, now, but... the the screwed up thing is, yes, I think uh, some of that stuff will come to pass. I think uh, the funding of terrorism is absolutely not going to stop. I think it's interesting. I, I, I do have a suspicion just sort of looking at the how much less money the Gulf countries have to play with right now. I do uh-huh. think we're going to see over the next couple of years, and I've made videos on this, we're going to see a dramatic curtailment of terrorist actions, mostly because all of these, you know, Nigeria, Afghanistan, Pakistan, every, all these countries that have all these groups that have been mm-hmm. dependent on Gulfy money, that money is going to dry up. We are going to see terrorism plummet. And I think that Trump will absolutely take credit for that. I think there's a history of uh, U.S. presidents taking credit for actions related to the oil price. One of the, I think one of the, uh, I mean, we all remember the Sunni awakening and the incredible success of the surge in Iraq um, that I would argue Mm -hmm. probably had a lot more to do with the uh, plummeting of oil prices in 2008 after the crisis than it did with any U.S. military action. Um, No, U.S. military action was certainly a factor. But if you want to see declining waves of terrorism, what you need is a lower oil price. And I think there's been a lot of, I think there's a hangover. I think that's a lagging indicator because these Gulf countries have learned from crises past that it's important to have very, very large reserves. Uh, But those reserves are quickly diminishing. And the amount of money that they have left over for adventuring and jihadi support is diminishing very quickly. So I think just broadly. I think Syria has the potential of working towards 
wrapping up in the next five years or so. And I think that these are the sorts of things that the Saudis and Trump will argue came as a reaction to this crisis, which it, it certainly didn't. It's got to do with the oil price. And so I think there will be less support for, for certain organizations. And, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing if Qatar started avoiding a lot of the, the organizations unqualified. It would be a good thing if Qatar stopped supporting some of the more out there and brutal and nasty organizations. I think it'll be good for Syria. I think it'll be uh, good in some other places. Uh, will Hamas lose any funding? Hell no. You know, the Saudis, if they're not doing it publicly, are, are doing it, are funding that privately. But uh, yeah, I do worry about Al Jazeera. I think a lot of people in the U.S. strongly dislike Al Jazeera and arguing for Al Jazeera as a... Uh, so Al Jazeera is completely funded by the Qatar royal family, I believe. And that, that, that's right, right? I'm not actually... I'm not sure about that. I know they broadcast from Qatar. I also know that they're a really good news organization. Yeah, that's not the reputation they have in the United States, but like a lot of state-sponsored uh, media organizations, if it's not talking about the country that pays its bills, uh, it can put a lot of interesting stuff out there. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, state-funded. And I think one of the, the main reasons, I think reason number one that Saudi Arabia has a mat on for Qatar is the relationship with Iran. For sure. Reason number two is Al Jazeera. I think it, you can make an argument. It probably wouldn't be 100% accurate, but you can, I think you can 100% say that the Arab Spring, that sort of rolling Arab Spring that we saw in 2011, would not have happened as quickly or perhaps would not have had as large a reach without Al Jazeera. Because Al Jazeera makes a point of, outside of Qatar, actually reporting news and actually reporting abuses by Middle Eastern regimes and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I think it's likely that as a way to defuse this situation, uh, Qatar will just sort of give up on that and uh, destroy one of the more useful news organizations. Yeah, there's, there's not a lot of really reputable worldwide news organizations backed up by billions of petrodollars. You know, uh, they have the money to do really good reporting all over the world. Um, and if you are afraid of Al Jazeera, because it has an Arabic name, it's actually, it's really good. You know, there's no reason to be anti-Al Jazeera, like zero. So what the Guardian of Truth chimes in, um, maybe let me know, uh, uh, Guardian of Truth, are you from Oman? But uh, um, I thought I got that sense, forgive me if I'm wrong. Um, if you wouldn't mind letting me know where you're from, that'd be great. But uh, Guardian of Truth chimes in to say, Al Jazeera does lie though. And uh, to that I say, of course, of course they lie. All news organizations lie, especially when they're dealing with the interests of their organization. Uh, in the U.S., I think most of the country acknowledges that sort of Fox News has a particular bias in a certain direction, but I would argue that uh, Fox News, New York Times, CNN, all of them have bias in, uh, in the same direction, actually. And that's when it comes to uncritical reporting of stuff that the United States government portrays as in its interest. Yeah, I mean, in, in as much as we talk about the New York Times or even the New Yorker or even like the New Republic being liberal news outlets, all of those are uh, pretty heavily biased towards the United States. Well, they're well, they're biased, and beyond that, they're biased towards the U.S. government. Uh, the yeah. complete was it was it you who were talking to someone I was speaking with recently who was talking about an extraordinary article in either the Washington Post or the New York Times where it was a very in-depth article. And the guy went to Aleppo and 
basically finally said all the things that all the U.S. news sources avoided talking about in East Aleppo. The fact that the, the, the heroic part of Aleppo that was being destroyed was sort of run by a collection of jihadi militias that were pretty terrible for the people living in East Aleppo. And I mean, not, not making apologies for Assad here. Assad is a very bad man. But just the, the degree of misinformation and the horseshit that was put about about what was happening in Aleppo and the, the heroic nature of the defenders of East Aleppo. So now that that's all done, somebody from the somebody from the Washington Post and the New York Times went there and actually talked honestly about what was going on there. But certainly not while the State Department was telling us about the evils of the Assad regime murdering Aleppo. So it's Al Jazeera lies. It lies in the interest of Qatar. It, it uh, but it also put a lot of information out there that would not have been out there. And uh, I don't want to just because. I'm a subscriber to the Washington Post. I, I think that the work that you and I do as independent media voices is tremendously important. Um, I think we need individuals out there who can try to sift through all this information and uh, make sense of it and try to correct for these biases. But the work that we do would be impossible without the money that CNN, the New York Times, Washington Post, heck, even occasionally Fox News puts into actually reporting the news, actually funding reporting on the ground, actually finding out what's happening. And I think Al Jazeera was an important part of that ecosystem. One of the most interesting things that I often bring up, I get in my comments a lot, well, Christians Christians aren't running around burning down mosques and aren't persecuting Christians. And there's actually one very clear counterexample of that, which is the Central African Republic, where a whole bunch of folks got together and burned down every mosque in the country. Um, you got Muslim minority, Christian majority. And I mean, that's a pretty clear counterexample to that, that assertion. Nobody is really aware of it because nobody ever talks about it. Somebody did finally make me aware of it. And there were two news sources that had mentioned it, had mentioned that in 2015, every mosque in the Central African Republic was destroyed by roving mobs of Christians. It was Al Jazeera was one of the organizations that mentioned it. And Fox News was the other one that had an article on uh, this, uh, uh, so these all of these news organizations, we have to acknowledge that yes, they do lie. Every news organization has an agenda, but we would be lost without our lying media. Yeah, I'm not sure I have a whole lot to add to that. If anybody wants to learn more about what Rob's talking about, they can read Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky, which is about the propaganda theory of news. Um, oh, God. <sighs> So I, sound like, so I sound like Noam Chomsky now? Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, well, not liberal, particularly. Liberal in disguise. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, no, it, but it's, not, it's not necessarily Chomsky. It's a simple approach of critical thinking. It's what is required to be an adult in this world is to realize that everybody's trying to sell us something and that there is truth to be gleaned. There is worthwhile news and information to get out there and to sort of recognize what is valuable and what is not. You don't have to go full into the, I think Chomsky goes a little too, he goes a little overboard in sort of the manufacturing of consent. Uh, It's, uh, I think one of the main problems I have with sort of general left critique of the world system and how it goes is I think they ascribe too much agency. You know, there's too much assumption that there's some sinister cabal making it all happen. And I'm sorry, that's on the left and the right. 
But I think Chomsky gets a little, goes a little too far into the sort of conspiracy world. It's not some sinister group uh, controlling what we consume. It's just, uh, just a succession of individual decisions based on sort of greed and selfishness. Yeah, and, and not to defend everything uh, Chomsky's ever written, but just in this particular case, when he talks about news agencies and what we've been talking about now for like a pretty long time, is that there's a series of systemic incentives that cause them to be biased towards their own national governments. Not not that there is, in fact, explicitly that there is not some directing cabal or some conspiracy, but just that a set of incentives uh, cause news agencies to act in that way. All right, so we we were talking about maybe trying to hold this conversation to ninety minutes, which uh, I think we're we're gonna miss the boat on that in like in like five. Uh, actually, I mean let's 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 scrap the ninety minute limit because I think it's very worth talking about. We've talked about the fact that Saudi Arabia is a dramatically larger supporter of terrorism, or at least the terrorism we care about, than Iran is. I think it's worth talking about the Saudi versus the Iranian systems for a moment. Um, I mean, Saudi Arabia is an absolute monarchy with a religious establishment that has to cater to. It's pretty much a monarchy, a theocracy, and not much else. It's a not quite unique system, because I think there's elements of that in the Gulf countries as well, but it's a very, very odd place that is impossible to imagine without large oil wealth. And I think that Iran... I mean, I don't want to get into value judgments and say Iran is a better country, but I think Iran is a more interesting country in a lot of ways. Can you just sort of, I know you've traced well, the sort of development yeah. of the system in Iran uh, in great detail. I mean, can we, cause, can we talk about that a bit? I think it's very, there's a very, people like to just say that Iran and Saudi Arabia are the same thing because, you know, there's a religious establishment, there's a religious establishment and a royal family in Saudi Arabia, and then there's a religious establishment and a serene, supreme leader in Iran, and they're the same thing. End of story. And that is not true. Um, yeah. So I think we've sort of done a, a back-of-the-envelope description of the Saudi system. Do you want to maybe enlarge a bit on what's going on, what has been going on in Iran? Yeah. Well, so... So I'm not, uh, anybody who's following my series knows that I'm not to the present day in Iran yet, and I can't claim to be any, 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 any kind of expert on, on Iran post-77 or so. But one of the first things, one of the most extreme differences between the two, you know, your back of the envelope uh, description and what's going on in Iran, is that the situation between monarchies, secular, you know, more or less secular monarchy, and theocracy in Saudi Arabia is not, is not particularly well legally defined, Right. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, the, as far as the, the, I mean, there's an absolute monarch and there's a religious establishment that has to be placated, and those, those are pretty much the facts. Yeah, but what, what I'm saying is that there, there aren't a set of constitutional or legal strictures that define what powers the religious establishment have uh, over and against the monarch, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's an ongoing negotiation. I'm sure parts of it are written up somewhere. Which, which is part of what pushes Saudi Arabia to be more extreme. Uh, in a Wahhabist direction, right? Because they have to placate that particular constituency. Exactly. Yeah, no, 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 no problem. Um, See, the interesting thing in Iran is that almost the entire history of Muslim Iran, you know, since since the 8th century or 9th, whatever, there has been a, a current in Shia Islam that involves the religious community, the ulama, in the government of the country, right? There's always, there's always been a philosophical line that advocates that, that arrangement. 
and the original Iranian constitution. Um, that, that abdicates that arrangement, that keeps the religious establishment out of? No, that ad, advocates, AD, advocates for that arrangement. And so uh, the original constitutional revolution in the, at the beginning of the 20th century came together as an alliance between liberalizing middle class and the clergy. And one of the parts of that constitution was, was kind of a clerical council that could review and veto legislation coming out of the, the parliament. So after the reign of the Shah, when they were beginning to set up a government under Ayatollah Khomeini, sorry, sorry, what? Just um, sorry, just one quick point. You talked, sure. You t- you mentioned that Iran had an emerging middle class at the turn of the twentieth century. Saudi Arabia has an emerging middle class now at the beginning of the twenty-first. That's a crucial distinction. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Iran, Iran has been uh, uh, more politically sophisticated than Saudi Arabia since the beginning of human civilization. Really. So, so what happens after they after they get rid of of the Shah through a largely nonviolent revolution is that there are several strains of political thought going on in Iran at the time, and all of them have a place for Islam and for the Islamic clergy in the government of the country. All of them, the people on the left have this very interesting combination of socialism and uh, and Islamic thought that we talked about last time, and Khomeini himself had created this new concept called a jurist guardianship where in the absence of the 12th hidden imam, the clergy, the mojtahads, the, the Islamic jurists were the people who rightly should be uh, making final decisions as far as, as, far as the, uh, the, the ummah, the, the Muslim community. So uh, what the situation is in Iran now is that there's a president and a parliament uh, and a committee, I think it's called a committee of experts, right? And uh, the guy at the top of it, which right now is Ayatollah Khamenei, not Khomeini, but Khamenei, is the supreme leader who has ultimate executive authority in the country. But below that, and as time goes on, and especially as the country itself liberalizes, the supreme leader is taking a less and less active and direct role in Iranian politics. Iran has democratic and parliamentary institutions which allow the popular will of the people to be expressed in government. Whether whether or not that will is eventually vetoed by the supreme leader, there are channels through which uh, the will of the people can be expressed. And what Saudi Arabia does not have uh, are said channels or uh, legal political channels. That's that's worth emphasizing. Yes, the supreme leader is more power, certainly more powerful than I would like or accept uh, in a country that I was living in, and you know is it seems a bit alien from Western contexts. But uh, I mean, you know, we, we saw these models prevalent in Europe as recently as 110 years ago. You know, it, it's it's not it's not it's not it's not necessarily a terrible way to organize things. And what's 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 important to recognize, you know, we always want to make value judgments because we're, we're, we're taught so often and so vehemently in school that, you know, American democracy is the best system in the world. Well, you know, uh, it's hard to judge what best is. You know, we're the best at executing people. We're the best at building guns. But apart from measures like that, it's hard to say what's better and what's not. But what we can recognize about Iran is that their system is native to Iran. It was not imposed by the United States or any enemy of the United States. That it depends that it depends on traditionally Iranian ideas. And that for the length of its survival since 1979, as best we can tell, it's had the support of the majority of Iranian citizens. I, I, I'll quibble with the... Uh, I could quibble with the United States' not the best system i'd argue there's a I, just, lot. I just think best is a meaningless word i take your general point that yes i mean iran is going to be different the inability to accept democratic results is a uh, 
in these countries when we're supposedly fans of democracy is uh, more than a bit hypocritical. Yeah. And I, speaking to that point, you know, Iran is our enemy, right? Or supposedly it is. But if you look at if you look at our allies, erstwhile and otherwise, right now we've got Iraq, or well, less now less now than previously. We've got Iraq, Saudi Arabia, we've got Egypt, we've got Turkey. Um, none of which are none of which are functioning democracies. Turkey is becoming less so, and you got Israel. And we we don't need to go into Israel, but there's an argument to be made that there's a large undemocratic element to what's going on there. And our enemy is Iran, which may which may be one of the most democratic countries in that region. You know, you look at that you look at that list, and some just something isn't right. You know. Well, and I, I think I think that gets to sort of just the fundable fundamental weakness of who we've chosen to back. I mean, Saudi Arabia. The point of Saudi Arabia is its weakness. It was supported by the British in an effort to do an end run around Arab nationalism, and then we sort of picked that up because we liked it better. To, we liked it better having a uh, a royal family to placate rather than a, a complete Arab public to placate. It was a lot easier. To, it's why we like the Shah in Iran. It's it's easy to deal with one guy who's in charge and and get get oil out of them. And so Saudi Arabia just is a system that does not make a ton of sense. And leaving aside morals, terrorism, ethics, everything else, there's just the simple fact that without us, Saudi Arabia is is pointless. We're we're, we're backing a very weak horse in in a regional conflict that we are inspiring and making worse. This is very dumb. And I, I've got to say, Iran, uh, while I certainly harbor some anger at Iran for certain actions. I mean, Iran's kind of amazing. They've managed to stand up against Saudi Arabia and the United States for 40 years. I mean, that's, and they've managed to do it within the context of a fairly cohesive and successful system and model, despite everything we have thrown at them. That's kind of extraordinary. So if you're looking decades out, if you're looking, if you're looking at a world where eventually China is going to have a larger military. Uh, there's all kinds of issues that we're going to want to be facing. So sort of two decades from now, are we still going to be allied to Saudi Arabia and sort of fighting desperate battles in the dust to try to preserve this place against a much stronger Iran? I mean, that, that's, that just seems, strikes me as desperately foolish. Well, uh, you know, if you study, if you study the history of uh, the United States foreign policy or really the policy the foreign policy of empires throughout all of history i mean i think the clear answer there is uh yeah probably probably we will be and that's um, it. And but the question that's the question just, I really that's just ask. horrifying i mean because it's just yeah so no, it, stupid i mean like like it, i i was talking with someone about this guitar crisis and uh, they were sort of saying well you know it's gonna it's gonna come down you know this is this might turn into a war and i i just had to describe it as the dumbest war imaginable. Yeah, it's just. But the uh, you know, what's what's the title of this thing we're doing right now? By the way, again, uh, Iran versus Saudi Arabia, backing the wrong horse. All right, yeah, that's what I thought it was. All right, so as far as unless unless we have something else to to handle, I think a question that I want to ask is, uh, you know, maybe we're backing the wrong horse, but do we need to be backing a horse at all? Or should we be backing a horse at all? I think, well, I think that gets to the broader question of sort of American empire, Pax Americana, the, the liberal order, the American world order, whatever you want to call it. 
Well, uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to keep it slightly smaller than that. Just just in the Middle East. Just we're looking we're looking like Egypt to Afghanistan, right? Yeah. Do we need to pick any of those countries and make it a winner and some other or group some other group of countries a loser? I think that just by virtue of the way that well, the Humpty Dumpty has been broken in the Middle East. I, I think we've we have we're operating in the context of an ongoing regional disaster. And I think it doesn't get better until some countries, I would argue probably Iran and Turkey, sort of step up and exert leadership there. And I think that our policy should be to maintain positive, friendly relations with every country in the region and get out of the way as Iran and Turkey and and sort of try to keep Turkey and Iran's emergence or re-emergence really, because those have been the main powers in the Middle East for most of a thousand years, and just sort of back off and let that let that emerge. So yes, I, I think I think that that's that's sort of an important point. If we're if we're gonna continue to back Saudi Saudi Arabia to to face the Iranian threat, it's just gonna keep sucking up billions, you know, what do they say, the Iraq war cost us a trillion dollars? It's important to emphasize that the whole taking down Saddam Hussein was largely to protect Saudi Arabia. So we're talking possibly trillions of dollars to keep Saudi Arabia in place. Uh, with Iran, we just have to sort of get friendly and step back. Uh, so yes, I think I am advocating a disengagement. Yeah, and uh, you know, this is all this is all probably wishful thinking, but things that I said about you know, unqualified support or unqualified alliances with uh, unqualified allies. You know, when we give this umbrella of protection to Saudi Arabia, it gives them a lot of leeway to, st- to not just to start, but to participate in proxy wars with other players in the Middle East, like Iran, in Syria, you know. They get, they get to fund militias in Syria because they know there will be no repercussions as far as Saudi Arabia goes. Same thing goes for Israel, you know. As long as we have this blanket military protection for Israel, they can pretty much do whatever they want in the occupied territories. But I think if you, if you like you said, you begin to step back in the region, you'll allow the people who really should be the major players, which is Turkey and Iran, you know, the most populous, the most stable, the most well-organized politically, actors in the region, uh, to take the leadership of the region, which it, it should be them. It shouldn't be us. It doesn't make any sense that we're over there trying to, trying to run things. And we're, ne- we're never going to have the know-how or the, the finesse or really the attention span to do anything I think that's. Uh, I think the know-how is uh, is a very important point, and allows me to work in a pitch for my essay. Everybody's lying about Islam. Uh, it was, I think, one of the the nicest, but also most terrifying reviews I got of my "Everybody's Lying About Islam" essay was from a guy. He, he said that he had worked in uh, in the intelligence, the U.S. intelligence community, for ten years, and he said that he got more out of my essay about what was going on in the region than he had gotten in his work in the intelligence community in the United States. I I think it's kind of extraordinary how little we actually know about these countries that we exercise such dominance and power over. You can actually compare that unfavorably to the the British Empire. Uh, It's one of the only uh, metrics on which you can compare our empire unfavorably to the British Empire, is that uh, they actually knew the languages and knew the knew the players uh, because they were less powerful than we were in a lot of ways and had to actually have some sense of what was going on. They, of course, fooled themselves and created incredible disasters, but 
we have no idea. Washington, D.C., the experts have no idea what's actually going on in these countries. They just get drawn into very simple narratives and make extraordinary mistakes. And we've been able to miss, we've been able in the, in the United States to avoid any real consequences from our complete ignorance of the region just because we are so powerful. Uh, that's fading. That we, we, can't, we can't do that forever. I'm not, I'm not someone who, an American declinist who thinks that, oh gosh, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to be nothing. But I do think that 50 years from now, we are going to be operating in a world that's closer to sort of great power relations in Europe prior to, prior to the world wars, where, where we are going to have real competitors in the world. And to continue at this just extraordinary level of ignorance of what's actually going on in the world will no longer be viable. So I think we've, we should probably wrap up. Uh, if anybody's got uh, some questions, uh, throw them in. Uh, I think I'm going to close with, uh, with, with a pitch. I think we've talked. I think this, this conversation illustrates the value of independent media and the fact that we need people like John and myself who are standing outside of these sort of traditional press and media outlets and talking seriously about these issues, but it's it's not really a money-making enterprise for either John or myself. We both have Patreon accounts, which are crowdfunding sources, and through our Patreon accounts, we try to get just a little bit of support for what, for what we're doing here. I'm in the middle of a fundraising push right now by July 15th, 2017, my 38th birthday. I'm trying to get to the point where I am making U.S. minimum wage for doing this work. I've actually been quite pleased and incredibly grateful for the progress towards the goal that I've made so far, but still got, still got a ways to go. And I would, I would urge you to consider chipping in to that if you've enjoyed listening to this conversation. And also, John has now set up a Patreon of his own for Safe for Democracy, which is one of my favorite podcasts. John, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for anybody who doesn't know, I run a podcast named Safe for Democracy. It's at safefordemocracy.com to make that easy. The Patreon is at patreon.com slash safefordemocracy. We talk about all of the history of U.S. foreign policy that you've never heard of. All of the coups, the assassinations, and the dirty dealings that have made the history of the second half of the 20th century. Thanks to someone who does think there's value to the Pax Americana and that the United States has done some good in the world, I think it's also tremendously useful to listen to some of the real mishaps. I, I think there is a value to American power and to truly overcome that ignorance that I was talking about, uh, to truly figure out how to intelligently disengage from our global cop role. We need to know how we've screwed up. And I think John and John is doing incredible work with the Safe for Democracy podcast in, in documenting those things. He's got one up on Guatemala, which taught me a lot. And uh, one on Iran, which has certainly introduced new aspects. Uh, I, I had some, some familiarity with the, the coup in Iran uh, prior to, but it's, uh, and it's also just a really interesting listen. Uh, really love the Safe for Democracy podcast. And it'd be great if we could keep John from going to law school and uh, keep him making this podcast. <laughs> and for uh, all the folks who are going to hear this uh, on my podcast, 
you know, I'm never going to get that much into current events. I'm never going to get that much into how what I'm talking about applies today or how it's affecting uh, what's happening today. And Rob does. Rob does every week and sometimes twice a week. And he's going to get uh, much deeper into the issues of the Middle East than I will ever be able to. Um, and I'm pretty sure he's going to make his goal and keep doing it, even if I go to law school. So listen but, to Rob, uh, man. But uh, I am concerned about that. So it'd be nice if people would consider chipping in. Yeah, no, no, definitely give him money, but also listen to his show. <laughs> Thank you. And I definitely listen to listen to Safe for Democracy. It's a fantastic podcast. I've got links uh, links in the description below. Um, also, this Saudi Arabia stuff was drawn from uh, my Everybody's Lying About Islam series. I've got about, geez, 15, 16 uh, episodes of that up now on the channel. Uh, you can find them in playlist form or just by going to the uh, videos section of my channel. I'd suggest checking those out. And I'm also using those to pitch an essay uh, called Everybody's Lying About Islam that I'm selling on uh, Amazon. It's available both for the Amazon Kindle and in paperback. Uh, I'd suggest checking it out. All right, guys. Any? Oh, everybody's leaving. Okay. No more. All right. Yeah. I think they got, a little sick of, they got a little sick of the pitch. Uh, I understand that. Um, but... Uh, Thanks, uh, thanks to those who participated in this chat. Uh, I think we had at least four or five countries represented, uh, some in the region, and that's very cool to see. Uh, thanks, guys, uh, guys and gals, uh, for uh, participating. And uh, and thank you, John. I think this has been a great talk. Appreciate it, Rob. Um, and with that, I think we will um, we will stop the broadcast. Uh, thanks for watching. Please subscribe, uh, both to the Safe for Democracy podcast and to this YouTube channel. All the best. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.